and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Roz Taylor. Ian Dunt is a columnist at The Eye and a new dog owner. I understand. Hi, Ian. Hello. Tell us about your dog, which I understand you've decided to name after a genocidal comic book alien. That's true. That's, I think, a predictable route for me to have taken. And yet this animal is a dachshund. It is, indeed. It's very small and very cute, so we called it Thanos. And they (laughs) they don't really mention it in the film, but in the comics, his sort of subtitle is The Mad Titan. Um, yes, well, I can't think of a more economical description of this animal at the moment than the Mad Titan, so, so that's what he's called. I sleep very little now, about two to three hours at a time. <laughs> and when I do, I sort of... Well, I dream of his anus, Because <laughs> there's nothing... I've become this sort of expert in his anus. Really, my whole world orbits around his anus. Yeah. So I watch for twitching, I watch for dips... His anus, and more importantly, the things that it produces, are capable of creating absolute euphoria in me when they happen in the right place and when they're very firm. Um, But when they're not those two things, they're capable of triggering really quite catastrophic despair, which is how I spend half my time now. Well, in other news. <laughs> it's not the earliest that someone's brought up anuses on this podcast before. I'm sure it's happened in Iceberg. Really? Really? Are you sure about it? <laughs> Uh, Nazanin Zagari Ratcliffe is finally on her way home. How is, how is that secured? We don't know yet. We're doing this on Wednesday. This will come out Friday. And I think by Friday, we'll probably have a better impression. There are some sort of rumours that is connected to the sort of activity of the government at the moment in terms of sort of ramping up oil production around the world, which we'll get into later in order really to try and reduce prices, which will impact on Putin. There is also, it has to be said, I mean, the local MP Tulip um, said quite positive things about the foreign secretary. I don't enjoy saying these words. I don't like the fact that they're coming out of my mouth, but we do sort of pride ourselves on this podcast on our our absolute fairness at all times. And she did actually say once you had a a female foreign secretary, things became a bit easier and gave very warm noises about the things she did. If that is true, and she's not exactly someone who's going to want to say it if it isn't true, it really would be to trust his credit, given the fact she hasn't made a big deal about it publicly. Um, so, yeah, I've now talked about my dog's anus and I've said great things about Liz Trust and I've only been here two or three minutes. So, so far, this has been a fucking disaster. <laughs> More about Liz Trust later. <laughs> Joining us today is Naomi Smith, Chief Executive at Best for Britain. Hi, Naomi. Hi, Rose. Uh, the UK Trade and Business Commission, which Best for Britain helped set up, released its annual report last week. Tell us briefly, what's Brexit done to British trade? Uh, nothing good. It's the TLDR, so you can skip over and not read the rest of the report. Um, we have been taking evidence for over a year now. Um, so we've had hundreds of witnesses. We've had 17 sessions that are a bit like select committee sessions with sort of live broadcast of witnesses answering questions from our commissioners um, over 30 hours of testimony. And far from you know business booming, whether it's musicians that can't tour, whether it's SMEs that are genuinely being crippled by extra red tape and the costs associated with that or their suppliers pulling out on them because it is just not worth servicing a small market anymore or whether it's you know farmers that are fearing the new trade deals um, not just sort of being let down by the, the TCA it really hasn't been great so there are 21 recommendations in the report so that the point of the commission is to be solution focused forward looking giving government ideas that it itself can't come up with or or just hasn't got the ambition or imagination to to come up with. And some of the really notable ones are 
the obvious, we've heard them before, lots of journalists have talked about them, we need a comprehensive veterinary agreement with the EU, we need far more accessibility to a Brexit support fund for SMEs because the original fund didn't pay out much money and was hard to access. Of course, it makes recommendations about much more flexible visa rules and, and, and you know, much more easier movement of people. But importantly, and I think this is an interesting one that a lot of people haven't necessarily clocked, is um, a new authority to protect standards in future UK trade agreements. Because as we have heard so often, it's going to be a race to the bottom, particularly on things like food uh, entering our supply chains um, as we do deals with other countries around the world. Our guest this week is the host of the Guardian podcast, Politics Weekly America. And he's also a columnist at The Guardian and presenter of The Long View on Radio 4. Jonathan Freeland, welcome to the show. Hello, very nice to be here in this actual real physical pod. Yeah. <laughs> it feels like you could grow illegal plants in here or something. Oh, no, we are, we are. <laughs> <laughs> They're just around the corner behind <laughs> On top of all that activity, you're a thriller writer who until recently went under the pseudonym of Sam Bourne, but you no longer do. You killed him off, didn't you? Well, I killed him off and then brought him back again. Um, So that's true. But now it is quite right that I'm emerging into the daylight as myself because I have a non-fiction book coming out in June and there's therefore no need for a non-de-plume, a book called The Escape Artist, a non-fiction but sort of history book, which is coming out in June. So, yes, Sam Bourne is briefly in a kind of enforced retirement for a while but you know he may be back uh, he's, he's, he's got that kind of Lazarus style of ability to come back Sam could be a she yeah, that's actually not only is that true it was also a happy byproduct of the choice of the name Sam Bourne because it was quite a commercial decision it was over 15 years ago now and the idea was to my agent said to me that my actual name didn't sound like a thriller writer. And I said, you know, what's that about? And he said, no, no, it sounds like a pointy-headed columnist for a pointy-headed newspaper. <laughs> You've got to have a muscular name, ideally two monosyllables, Dan Brown, Matt, you know, Sam Bourne. And so, and he said, really, you, you because we came upon that name, and then he said, there's two very good things here. First is you always want to have a surname in between A and F in the alphabet. So you're at the top, yeah. High eye-level shelf in the bookshop because there's oh, wow. diamond there. Good for a ballot paper as well. Apparently the A's get a slight Slight edge, advantage yeah. because you're higher up. Yeah. But also if you can have a sort of gender ambiguous first name, that's always good. J.K. Rowling is J.K. Rowling for a reason because you do, if you can be a Sam mm. or something like that where the reader doesn't really know, Thrillers are the only genre where they have equal numbers of male and female readers. All other forms of literature are dominated by women in terms of readers. But men quite like not knowing, or at least it's possible that the author is a man. And so that's the, <laughs> that's, that's the reasoning. Um, and so hence, yeah, Sam Bourne. But now back as Jonathan Friedland. Yeah, a friend of mine who writes historical thrillers, basically historical fiction, says uh, she's discouraged actively by her publisher from yeah. writing about men because apparently that doesn't test well. It's very strange. Oh, because the readers are women. Because for that the, readers, the readers, yeah, and the readers yeah. want to want to read about women. And she says, I want to have some good male characters. And they say no. <laughs> Extraordinary. <laughs> Tell us to become a thriller writer. <laughs> <laughs> this week on the show, 89,000 people have signed up to the government's Ukrainian resettlement scheme. We're going to talk about whether the government has got that right. And we'll be talking to Jonathan about the New World Order. In the extra bit for Patreon backers, with reports that museum visits don't improve GCSE results, we're asking the panel what their favourite ever school trip was. (laughs) 
After a polite delay, Britain has slapped sanctions on a number of Russian oligarchs, with London outposts, including Roman Abramovich and Oleg Deripaska, whose family mansion in Belgravia was occupied by squatters yesterday. Many police officers turned up to protect it, happily for Oleg. A disclaimer, Deripaska says the house actually belongs to a family member. Meanwhile, Russia continues to shell Ukrainian cities and the total number of refugees is now more than 2.5 million. There are hints of a bit of a progress in talks between Russia and Ukraine, but at the time of recording, nothing concrete. Ian, Boris Johnson is closely connected to the owner of the Evening Standard and the Independent, because as we know, he's a very sociable man, as (laughs) Dominic Raab revealed today. (laughs) The Lord of Hampton and Siberia, better known as Evgeny Lebedev. Lebedev bought those papers with money inherited from his father, who was a KGB agent in London, and he grew close to Johnson when he was London mayor, though there's no record of Lebedev actually donating directly to the Tory party, we should point out. And Johnson has dismissed objections to him as anti-Russianism, Russophobia. What does Lebedev want out of Britain? Because he doesn't even actually vote in the Lords. I suppose there's two ways of looking at it, right? Like, what does he want as an individual? And how is he useful to the Kremlin? Because we don't have the one of the crucial things that happened is Boris Johnson, when he was told this is not a suitable person for a peerage, said, give me the smoking gun. The response, you know, from the security services, security services have been refusing to meet with him when they've been meeting newspaper proprietors since 2013. So it's been a while now is we don't deal in smoking guns. We deal in risk assessments. And our risk assessment is this is not a guy that you should be sitting next to uh, next to. So. We don't know exactly what it is that he wants. What we do know is this. He clearly enjoys the high society life. You can, If you go online, you will find photographs of him with every celebrity that some of you haven't admired and many that actually I really have quite admired and thought, I really wish I'm not looking at a photo of you next to this man right now, let alone the politicians. He enjoys the standing and the privileges um, that it offers. And at the same time, The public comments that he has made about Russia and its foreign policy and its domestic policy have been pretty much on point with Kremlin messaging throughout. It was on Crimea. It was on Litvinenko. It was a constant praise of Putin. Over and over, he's on point with what the Kremlin wants. Now, I'm not suggesting, and I don't think anyone is, that this is the Kremlin sort of sends a fax, right? And he's like, these are the lines to take. And off he goes with it. So that he kind of knows his position. And I suspect, and again, this is, this is sort of speculation, that the Kremlin rather enjoys having a guy like him put in the Lords with those photos of him with those robes. He wanted at one point to have a, the name of someone sort of specifically in Russia. To have, I think it was, I think he wanted to be called Lord of Moscow or something before it was sort of vetoed by security services. Red warning on that, but I'm pretty sure that's right. The best reporting on this is in the Sunday Times last week. Yeah. I mean, it, I think but, that that but, does but, benefit but the Kremlin. But Ian, and surely him. if you're mixing in, you know, parties with celebrities and influential, powerful people, you're going to have goss on them. There's the story about, I mean, I think another podcast whose name we won't mention did a, a big piece on on Johnson's connections to Lebedev a couple of weeks ago, talking about how he was, you know, Blair turned up and left quickly, other politicians, but Johnson stays till 2, 3 a.m. drinking with them all. You know, someone's going to have embarrassed themselves or done something or, you know, whatever. So you, you're starting to gather information on these people that you can use over them, presumably. I mean, that is surely part of what it is to have these 
agents operating in and around influential people. There must be some truth to that. I mean, it's hard for us to talk about it because we don't know anything. And so it always comes across as whatever. But there must be some truth to it. It's also true that according to the Sunday Times, he was sat there in the House when Gove and Johnson first met up and decided to support Brexit. Now, again, that just sounds like it's going to trigger all the worst kind of, you know, Romaniacs Twitter sort of (laughs) stuff of like, well, this proves whatever. No, we don't know that. But we do know that he was there. You know, and that degree of influence and being in the room, I'm not going to start singing like I'm in Hamilton, but if you're in the room, it is different to if you're out the room. And he is in the room. We know that and we know that he repeats Kremlin messages. I think now it's quite interesting that The Standard did a kind of crit- uh, front page that was critical mm. of Putin, stop this war, etc. Mm. And the notion that he is now a licensed dissenter, that, yeah. that Putin thinks you are of such value to have you there in the establishment that we're going to allow you to do the minimum degree of deviation from the Moscow line that's required seems very plausible to me. I don't know if he's been gathering compromise. It's rather just the – what benefits Putin is the idea that this person is intimate with – the ruling group of this country, it immediately compromises them, even if you don't actually have proper dirt on these individuals. The fact that they are nestling alongside, photographed with this person immediately makes it hollow for them to say Putin is um, autocrat that we must be distanced from. And they, I think, knew that, that in a way, just their ability to stand in judgment of Putin was compromised by having him there as part of their circle. Ian, it's not just the oligarchs themselves. There's a whole support structure of highly paid Britons who serviced these oligarchs. That sounds mm. horrible, doesn't it? But it's, it's kind of true, <laughs> right. In, including lawyers. Tell mm. us how that's affected what journalists can publish. Well, the libel laws in this country affect journalists all the time. Um, they are... <sighs> Well, I mean, my view is that they're incompatible with a country that really values free speech. They're far too draconian. They're far too tough. The onus is on the journalist to prove that they're not libeling in a way that seems fundamentally unjust. If you get, I mean, these are big firms. I mean, Carter Fuck is the obvious one, right? And they will absolutely (laughs) fucking bury you. And it's not about having your day in court. That's the core thing to realize. It's like you're not going to get to court, okay? Like if you're in, contracts differ, right? And for some, I can only speak about the kind of contracts that I have. In, in some of them, I know I'll get some legal support from the publication. But if they're going to give me legal support, they also get to make the call a lot of the time on the way that that legal challenge goes. Other times, you're not going to get any support at all. I might have support from a publication, but if I go on LBC and say something, I'm pretty much on my fucking own for, for when that happens. I don't have any kind of money to deal with even three letters from these motherfuckers. You know, I mean, there's no way you're ever going to get there. So what that does is create a chilling effect. And we have seen this weaponized and used against almost anyone that writes in a sustained investigative way about the Kremlin regime. Naomi, let's move on to the refugee efforts. There's Mm. such a dearth of talent in the Home Office that the Ukrainian refugee scheme is actually being run by Michael Gove's levelling up (laughs) department. (laughs) So telling, isn't it? We've taken what you might call a very different approach Mm -hmm. from the EU. There, Ukrainians haven't had to get visas before coming to the host country. Now, in Britain, you'll be let in if someone agrees to house you. What's the thinking behind this scheme? How much thinking is there behind the scheme? (laughs) Well, first thing to say is there is clearly incredibly strong support amongst the British public for this, for welcoming Ukrainian refugees. I think uh, YouGov have polled it twice in the last week, and it's around sort of 75, 76% support um, for us as a country to offer much more refuge than we have been doing so far. And at the start of this week, Gove made a slightly controversial statement in the Commons where he said that the hostile environment was Labour's doing. 
I'm not here to defend New Labour's record on on its you know um, defence of migrants at all, let alone asylum seekers. Um, but of course, it was under Theresa May that the whole thing you know really takes off. But overlooking the debate of who did what and when. Gove, you, you, you and your party have had 12 years to fix this, but you have voted to remove immigrant and refugee rights every single time you've had a chance. And he looked genuinely frustrated at the dispatch box. And I don't know if, if listeners watched that, but, you know, he sort of, yeah, I'm sick of, you know, us talking about a country that isn't welcoming to immigrants. And I kind of get it because you spend your entire political career being as horrible as possible to refugees because you think it's what the standard British person wants. Mm. And then lo and behold, now they turn around and three quarters of them say, you've got it wrong. We want them here. We want them here. So, you know, I guess the British public maybe just isn't as vile as some in the right wing press would like us. Or the British public took the this government and the vote leave movement that Gave shaped this government to, at their word. And if you remember, the rhetoric constantly in the 2016 referendum campaign was, of course, genuine asylum seekers, genuine refugees will always be welcome. Mm. We have yeah, a noble yeah. tradition of Good doing point. that, they would say. And we'll talk about that. Um, uh, but it's only these people who are coming here just to steal mm-hmm. all our jobs that we don't like. That was almost what gave them the moral permission to make the anti-immigration argument was the idea that, of course, refugees are a completely different category of person. And so it's possible that even people who were, as it were, anti-immigration mm-hmm. in 2016 felt there was a an exemption for capital G genuine uh, refugees, this is as genuine a case as you will ever get. And I think there might be some people who were quite sincerely surprised by it because they thought this was what we were we were signing up for back in 2016. Jonathan, some people have talked about the kinder transport as a kind of proof that the UK has a proud history of accepting refugees. It's not that simple, is it? No. I mean, this has become a kind of trope or uh, just a kind of catechism that people will say, we have a noble tradition of uh, uh, of letting in refugees, for example, the kinder transport. And Simon Heffer was on the radio on Sunday morning and he said it again, almost as an aside, as if it's obviously not even controversial. And it just sort of triggered something in me, which I thought, you know, it's about time somebody said, why yeah. are they called the kinder transport? Why kinder, meaning children? This is something I think most British Jews always have known and we haven't sort of talked about much. But I thought at this point, somebody had to say it. It was children because this country refused to let in adults. That was the – there was huge pressure actually, public pressure when uh, Jews were being persecuted in Nazi Germany. There was a big drumbeat of populist feeling here saying we should let these people in. And there was big pressure on the government to do it. And yet they knew there was countervailing pressure from people who didn't want a whole lot of Jews coming in. So they were saying no, the door was closed. And the various pro-refugee groups, British Jewish groups, but many allies, independent MP, Eleanor Rathbone, people like that, Quakers, others, thought we're going to have to come up with something that is going to be palatable to this government and to the public opinion that is hostile to immigrants. And so as a very much second best, they said, what about children? Surely even the most hard-hearted anti-immigration person is going to feel that it's they can't turn away children. So the kinder transport was a terrible compromise. Mm-hmm. It was saying we can't – better than leaving, uh, no, uh, leaving all of them to – uh, the mercies of Nazism, if we can admit some children, that's better than nothing. And that is how you got those scenes, which I have to say are my association with the word kinder transport, are terribly traumatic scenes 
at railway stations in Germany, but in, in Prague and elsewhere, where families were torn apart, where parents literally had to hand their children to strangers, saying, we don't know if we're ever going to see you again. Children aged four and five, you know. And often it went up didn't. to 17. And most cases, they never saw them again. Yeah. And it was about 9,000 who came here. But every one of those children came here because we wouldn't let in their parents. And, and as I've, you know, I've been writing about this a little bit in the last few days, 9,000 people, all of them, and their descendants are hugely patriotic and grateful to Britain for letting them in. But that is a tiny, tiny fraction of the, in the end, 6 million Jews who would be murdered. And those people were never within uh, sight of no. uh, a British port or British harbour. Isn't this policy also quite devious that it, it's effectively letting the government off the hook for being responsible themselves? So it's like, well, if you, if you want them, you, you take them in and you house them and we'll bung you some cash for it. But at the same time, it's also if you criticise the government, it's giving them a stick to beat us if we criticise them on their refugee policy. It's like, well, how many have you taken in? But that's very funny you say that because I thought when you just began there that you were talking about the past. But you would have been right right, about the past. The kinder transport, not only was it just children, it was a private scheme. Mm. There had to be – you had to uh, agree a bond, £50 per uh, refugee. You had to be responsible. Mm. It was only happened because all these different private welfare and – uh, self-help groups organised it. So the, the funny thing is there's a real echo there that they, and it was also uh, temporary. So the deal was temporary, it was you better pay for it and it's only going to be kids. So that's the noble tradition. It's not quite as noble as we like to tell ourselves. The one qualified put on it is Sunder Katwala of uh, Best for Britain, or not Best for Britain, of Britain... <laughs> Britain's future. Britain's future. future. Yes, brilliant group. And he's a brilliant man. He came up with this quite interesting argument, which is, he said to me, look, you're right on the history, but we've seen done polling and people are more pro-refugee if you tell them this is a noble tradition in our history. Mm. So if you say we've always done it, people will be more receptive to letting in refugees. That is a good pragmatic argument for people like me to shut up about the history. uh, Because if look, if that's what it takes to persuade people, then maybe we better do it. But as it happens, the history isn't quite so congenial. No, I mean, the the truth has to matter irrespective of of its utility. It has to. I worry about what will happen because the £350 a month that you mm-hmm. get for taking in a refugee or refugee family runs out after a year, as you as with the kinder transport. It's a short, it's a mm-hmm. short-lived deal. What happens to those people then? It's not as though Britain has right. tons of affordable, decent housing, is it? You are so right on this, Rose, and of course. Gove is also the minister responsible for housing, uh, and we've got a huge shortage of decent quality homes. I also worry that uh, this is just about, you know, finding them a roof over their heads and hopefully someone that will put some meals on the table. These people need jobs and they need jobs for many reasons. One of them is to protect them and to give them some sense of agency. And while I think the vast majority of the 100,000 odd people that have pledged to take people in have done so in good faith, there will be some bad eggs. There will be some bad apples in, in this. So we have to have a, a proper vetting procedure in place. I hope that the authorities, the relevant authorities in, in you know local communities as well as government are mm. there for this. But the one way we can help to protect these people is by getting them jobs and helping them earn their own money so that they are not going to be dependent on those that have taken them in. Next, a question from our Patreon backers in But Your Emails. This week, a question from a backer who is genuinely called Boris Johnson. 
Isabel End. That's how I'm going to pronounce it. <laughs> Since 2016, I've been using the metric system for everything, maps, directions, my weight, etc., just in case I bump into Nigel Farage and he asks me a question about any of those things. <laughs> Let's hope that that never happens to you, Isabel End. This means I've spent a lot of time not really knowing how long it's going to take me to get somewhere. <laughs> But it still feels worth it. <laughs> what potentially pointless reactions to the Brexit referendum have members of the panel proudly maintained ever since, other than podcasting? Oh my God, you dick! <laughs> <laughs> other than podcasting, um, I I got a EU passport cover. Oh wow! Um, mm. When my lovely old passport ran out and I had to renew it with a horrible, horrible new one uh, and I sort of proudly waggle it at border control and particularly if I think there are Brexity people behind me in the queue at check-in or something like that and I make a very big point of <laughs> handing over my nicely EU-clad passport. I suppose I'm, embar- I'm a bit embarrassed to admit this actually. <laughs> no, go on, you have to tell Come on. It wouldn't be the worst thing I would miss it on here. But it's a bit, I suppose there probably is a bit of me. I remember when the, when the new European first came out, right, the first few weeks that it came out. And I remember sitting on the tube and it, it's actually quite uncomfortable to quite hold big, a paper yeah. open. No, I mean, any paper, right? Because usually you get it, you fold it and then you fold again and you sit there. But I was just fucking like, basically, it was like my back. It was just like, yeah, fucking new. I didn't even, I was barely reading it. It was just like fucking the new. And I think there's a bit of me You're even sure. now. Exactly. That feels kind of like with books with European authors or even if I'm watching a film with subtitles like... Especially after, you know, that Trump thing against um, Parasite where he was, oh, we should all be watching fucking Gone with the Wind for the umpteenth time instead of this foreign trash. That I'm quite proud to recommend films with subtitles in a way that I wouldn't have been before. It would just be like, well, it's just a fucking, it's just a film, film. Yeah, right? You, but you now it feels have more actually, like a statement. You have mocked me before for my preference for, you know, Danish films, for example. Yes, <laughs> what yeah, about no, that's, you? True, that's true. Well, was that because we had to pick our favourite film and I was like, I bet it's going to be fucking bleak as fuck. And you're like, it's a Danish film about a paedophile or something. I was like, no, of course, of course it is. Of course it is. The guy is not a paedophile. That's the whole point. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We've been through this. <laughs> I didn't say my comprehension of films. He was, was just very, very friendly. <laughs> I, I do a thing of, of trying to talk, you know, as I haven't really been to many European countries since Brexit because of the pandemic and so on. But when I go to France, I speak French very loudly to all the border staff and yeah. such, you know, just to prove that I am, which is a bit, bit passag, really, <laughs> um, as opposed to other British people who just speak English quite loudly. And that yeah, is probably the best thing to do. But yeah. I worry that I'm slightly like one of those kind of liberal um, you know, white Americans who tells everyone they'd have voted for Obama for a third term, <laughs> which is that the equivalent is that I am, you know, over-friendly, over-smiling to anybody who clearly is European, yeah. for, you know, non-British European in this country. So if somebody speaks to me in a kind of, you know, continental accent, immediately this broad rictus smile <laughs> spreads across my face. I also did have a spasm of recognition on the film thing because I went to see Parallel Mothers, the Almodovar film, and in a way, there are criticisms I would have made of that film if it was an English-made film, but instead, or British-made film, instead, you sort of say, you know, it's great, it's very perceptive, very sophisticated film. There is that kind of over-Europeanizing. So I think we, I think Isabel, as I also will choose to call our correspondent, I think um, 
they're onto something here and we are, we, they're overcompensating. I'm probably a little bit guilty of it. I thought Paradigm Mothers was probably the worst film he's ever made. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's wonderful rubbish. to watch, but it actually does fall apart in your hands afterwards a little I, bit. I, I loved it. I don't get that at all. I'm a big, big, I grew up with his films and I was just, I just don't understand. It's like two films, it's they make no connection with together, each other. Yeah. If he was making a connection, I fuck knows what it is. And I just sat there and just thought, no, that didn't work. Just make a fucking Spanish Civil War film. If that's what you're going to do, like, I want you to make that film, go make that film. I'm aware this is not what this podcast is about. I'm aware that... No, I really want to talk about it then. <laughs> Leave that for the culture bunker. I'm sure yeah. we have many Arvanova fans listening in. Liz Truss has been making a speech... Last week, the Foreign Secretary told the Atlantic Council in Washington the invasion of Ukraine is a paradigm shift on the scale of 9-11. Jonathan, you've said that it's actually even more significant than that, haven't you? I have. I think it probably is. I mean, you know, a better parallel might be 1989 and the fall of the Berlin Wall or, or even some kind of blend of the two. But if you think about how everyone said, well, the world has changed now after 9-11, we're now, you know, a lot of talk of we're in a war, this is a clash of civilizations. Actually, in retrospect, I think we can say, and even many of people were saying at the time, it, that was to overplay the threat. It was from a small and particularly lethal group of violent jihadists. But it wasn't a clash with Islamism or, and certainly not with Islam. But it was billed as if it was that. In this case, this is actually a clash with a state power. This isn't just a group of you know, hardcore extremists or terrorists. This is a state power, one a nuclear-armed power, a large, historically mighty country. Um, and it, there is a huge principle at stake. And it's funny because after 9-11, everyone said, well, this is an attack on freedom and and so on. Well, you know, it was a very particular, spectacular and lethal gesture by one group to advance a quite narrow ideology in this case, it really is about freedom in a very, in a really big way. Freedom with a capital F, which is the freedom of nations to choose their own destiny and to govern themselves. I mean, that wasn't on the table after 9-11 in, in, in anything like the same way. So I think the sort of stakes are higher. The principle at stake is higher. But also immediately, you've just seen the kind of within a week or two, the shakeout from it. And I think we're going to get onto this. But, you know, Germany deciding after 80 years of standing back, deciding that it needs to have a substantial defense pillar and a, re a realigning of the world into, into the lines of dictatorship or democracy. And in, in a really stark and clear way, with that central principle in it, which is, do nations get to determine themselves or can they? Can big ones just gobble up smaller ones? Those are really big principles. And that does seem to herald a kind of decades-long, you know, epochal struggle in a way that I now think 9-11 probably wasn't. I mean, we, we, it was interpreted as if it was, and the result was a series of mistakes, actually, um, which we can perhaps also talk about in terms of Iraq and Afghanistan. This, um, this the stakes, I think, are higher and the actors involved, particularly Putin and Putin's Russia, Putinism, are bigger and more powerful. Well, as you say, Germany has transformed its whole attitude to defence in, in three or four weeks, and not to mention Putin himself, who they were necessarily engaged with. And many of us are happy to see the EU moving as pretty much one. But what pitfalls do we need to watch out for? This has all happened very fast. What do we need to be careful about? One thing I think is a kind of uh, category error, uh, and that is to 
uh, partly just as a way of thinking about it, I think it's better if we talk about Putin and Putinism rather than Russia and Russians. Yeah. Um, it's quite an interesting debate going on around this with somebody like Anne Applebaum, a writer I admire hugely, keeps on saying, don't let Russians off the hook. They enable Putin. They support him, etc. I think it's more pragmatically sensible to think actually the Russians were and are the first victims of Putinism. They're the ones who are gagged. They're the ones who've been robbed blind by the oligarchs. This, these were their national assets uh, at, the, at the collapse of the Soviet Union and they were taken from them. And they're the ones who are both gagged and also blindfolded, not allowed to know what's going on in the world. So they, to me, I think the best way to think about it, even if, you know, Applebaum probably has some some uh, some right on her side, the best way to think about it is there are potential allies in this. We're all against Putinism. We need to liberate them as well as Ukraine kind of thing. Uh, so that's one thing. And then the second thing I think is to be very clear, once you've decided that's what you're about, that will guide you in terms of how you deal with it. Because I think one of the mistakes in the 9-11 case was – that because there was this haziness about what we were fighting, even to the point of calling it a war on terror, you know, a war on an abstract noun, mm. because of that, it meant you could lash out wildly and you suddenly were invading all of Afghanistan when actually your enemy was specific al-Qaeda bases. Mm. And then similarly Iraq, which have obviously had nothing to do with it. So once you define it too widely, that can be a mistake. If you decide it's Putin and Putinism, you'll know who to go after. The third thing I would just say as well about mistakes to avoid is a post-1989 lesson, which is beggaring and humiliating a defeated party only stores up trouble for later. Of course, we should have learned that lesson with Versailles in 1919. It, you know, it's not complicated. But the world did sort of humiliate Russia. And I've noticed a little talk now. There was an American politician saying, we're going to have to do a Marshall Plan. I thought that's sensible. For Ukraine. And I thought, no, no, that's not the point. <laughs> the point of the Marshall Plan is you rebuild your previous, your former enemy. And so... I'm quite hardline on one thing. I don't, I don't think anything's going to be good enough unless there is the total defeat of Putin and Putinism. Obviously, we all want there to be a truce agreed in these talks, but not if it enables Putin to come back and live to fight another day and live to invade another country. I think there has to be probably eventually the total defeat of Vladimir Putin and Putinism. But once that's happened, Marshall Plan style funding to make Russia viable and not humiliated – and to un, you know to repair the damage that was done, I think after 1989. Well, that is something, of course, that America could potentially get involved in. How how engaged is the U.S. with this war? Do you think Joe Biden has struck the right notes so far? It's interesting. I've been talking for, partly for the Guardian podcast you mentioned to a few American politicians this week, and it's interesting the pressure there is on Biden from his own side, from Democrats who say, "Look, I don't want there to be a nuclear war either." But why do you keep saying that you're not going to set a single, you know, footstep across the uh, border of a NATO country? Whatever happens, you are signaling to Vladimir Putin, look, knock yourself out because we are not going to lay a glove on you. Mm -hmm. And that pressure at the moment is about presentation and communications. They're saying don't keep saying it. Mm -hmm. But you can't help but feel that behind that is a sort of substantive objection, which is – you know, we're not so sure you should be completely taking force off the table. Uh, and the flashpoint was this business with the Polish fighter planes. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, Poland wanted to take in these planes and get them to the Ukrainian Air Force, Air Force. And the blocks were put on that by the United States. Some argument, again, not clear about whether that was how it was being done rather than the rights and wrongs of doing it. 
But there, there are pressure points there. And I'm not sure that Democrats' patience is infinite on the idea of just standing by and watching Mariupol and Kharkiv and the others being smashed to smithereens. You know, it's not clear to me that the that they'll that there that if there is one triggering event, there won't be a demand for Biden to be tougher. And Zelensky, the last thing I'll say because others should get in, but Zelensky's speech to Congress, which has just happened as as we all sit around this table, he very I mean he's he is brilliant in how he communicates. And his message was if you are going to be the leader of the free world, that means you have to lead on this, and that means you have to be a leader of peace. Very clever, because what he means is you have to enforce peace. Uh, no fly zone will require hard power. Uh, so, you know, I, at the moment, it's all holding. Biden's getting a lot of credit for keeping NATO together. Everyone's thinking what a nightmare it would have been if it was Trump. So far, everyone's with him and his opinion poll numbers are rising. And that's the first time that's happened. But I do wonder if even on his own side, there will be some impatience and it may already be building. Ian, could the West handle an alliance on the scale of Russia and China, because what we've seen in the last few days is signals that China might be prepared to fund Russia, if not, or perhaps we should say Putin, (coughs) if not actually send weapons. What will happen if they make a solid move that indicates they're on Russia's side? Well, in a sense, no one can handle anything that's happening, right? Because we're talking about nuclear armed power. So it sort of doesn't If you add one nuclear armed power to another nuclear armed power, you're still just as fucked as you were the first time. So I think there's a there's a sort of problem there. The second one is I, I'm never too sure about how close to China Putin's willing to get. The whole thing of Putin is the greater Russia, Russia with power. Russia would be like a junior partner is putting it charitably when it comes to the relationship with China. So I think once you go into that, that would seem a very humiliating situation for him to find himself in and one that I don't think he'll take. China is watching very carefully indeed. And sometimes it is alarmed at what it sees because it knows that this is what would face it, you know, in a similar situation. Obviously, we think Taiwan, but there's there's many others that we could think of. Um, And it is planning for it. I mean, one of the I mean, for a long time, it's been, you know, trying to become sort of inwardly sustainable on technology, things like um, conductors. So I mean, throughout this, you get this sort of sense of, of China assessing it and looking at what's happening with Russia and thinking, if that works to pulverize Russia, that would genuinely discourage, I think, Chinese aggression. If it doesn't, if there is weakness there, if Putin comes out of this thing, okay, it massively encourages them. Boris Johnson is actually in the Gulf today, sweet-talking Saudi Arabia into selling us oil more cheaply until you know, the dream world in which we scale up wind and nuclear power and become completely energy independent. Mm. <laughs> How bad a taste does that leave for you, Ian? Well, it's very bad indeed. I mean, to be, I would be slightly more charitable to him, I suppose, in saying that I, th- I think the, the plan is really to just ramp up production in Saudi Arabia so that you lower the price of oil, which, which chisels away at Putin's war chest. However... We could talk, for instance, about, the, you know, they killed 81 people just in one day the other week. We can obviously talk about the fact that they assassinate and butcher journalists. We can talk about the way that they torture and sexually abuse feminists and, women and female campaigners. We can talk about all the things they do. But also the core strategic element is surely this, that he is the same as Putin in the manner in which he operates. He's a belligerent bully in a way that actually that state wasn't before. Previously, it was just this incubation bed for Islamic fascism. Now it's slightly different. It's that belligerent bully strategy. Now that is deployed. The idea that we can, and yes, you can come up with the tactical reason why a reduction in the oil price would serve our purposes. But if you look at what's actually happened this week, 
it is the West, for the last few weeks, it is the West discovering its values and what it stands for and deciding that it will or will not stand up for them. Now, in that case, this is not the guy that you come to. You do not come yeah. to the people who are trying to fucking bury you and go, please help us on this other because it's in our short-term interest all of a sudden. No, fuck that. The strategy is deeply flawed on a moral basis, but I think ultimately as well on an operational. Did you see uh, David Frost did this ridiculous uh, intervention last night saying, oh, uh, tearing up the Northern Ireland Protocol should be in the next Conservative manifesto. And then today has gone on a rant about why, you know, it's so wonderful to be an independent nation state outside of the EU. And one of the things we can do is set our own energy policy on the fucking day that the Prime Minister has had to go (laughs) cap in hand to Saudi Arabia to beg for oil. Oh, my God. I mean, the, um, the, it is so the opposite of the argument that Frost made that Nem has just told us that what this has proven, of course, is that the uh, West, when uh, confronted with an attack like this, has to unite. And that means mm. Europe. And the argument for the European Union, I know this is the right place to make Never this, been stronger. It really has never been stronger. And it's been a reminder of why it was founded in, in the, the first, first place. place. And I think a lot of people did lose sight of that. Never this again. was a mechanism to prevent another war in Europe. And the thing, the reason why I think it's particularly relevant is you notice still, and I know people picked up on the kind of implied racism of this when a few people right in the early first wave of this said, well, we're used to seeing this in Yemen or Syria, but my word, this is in Europe. This is in civilized Europe. Right? White Christian well, Europe. Well, so that, that, that's the implication. And in some cases, it was even explicit. The reason why that's offensive is obvious in terms of the, the racism of it. But it's also one of those completely ahistorical remarks. Again, what is the most murderous place on the surface of the earth historically? It is Europe. And there's a reason why the historian Mark Nazau called his book about Europe, the dark continent, right? It's not Africa. It's here. <laughs> this is a, the continent where people kill each other in huge numbers and in barbaric ways again and again and again. And so the whole European Union project was devised because it was understood to be the default in Europe. European countries invade each other and kill each other and murder their civilians unless, you, you know, stated otherwise, unless you build in some mechanism. And that mechanism was the European Union. And in fact, it was the coal and steel community, even more. Mm. It was yeah. all about energy. Right. It was, right. They fight each other over coal. Germany and France will keep killing each other for coal unless you make it so that they don't have to fight each other. <laughs> this is quite basic. And so I really think the most we could ask, the minimum, the least we could ask from the Brexiters at the moment is a period of silence. You know, <laughs> button it because you took us out of the structure that was protecting, ju- protecting yeah. this continent from uh, war and which, just as if you know, we our words don't need to say this. What is one of the very first things Volodymyr Zelensky does? Movingly, he applies to join mm. he the European Union and all the arguments have been about NATO, but that is so profound to my mind. So the Brexiters need to really sit this one out. This doesn't prove anything about an independent policy. It proves that actually, and funny enough, yet another little bit of half praise for Liz Truss. I think in a funny way she sort of understands this because the anti-European rhetoric is down, and she suddenly wants to be on the calls with those other European leaders and in those meetings because she understands you can't deal with this on. On your own? Of course not. It has to be European solidarity. One of the things I hope for, definitely not a prediction, it's a hope, is that in all this shaking of the kaleidoscope, to use a 9-11 image that Tony Blair deployed then, that we're witnessing now, maybe some of it shakes out so that people look at the European, in this country, look at the European question again through new eyes and say, you know what? Why did we bang on about trade and regulations? We missed the big, big argument. And 
on that argument, we, Britain now by leaving, is on the wrong side. I hope that gets reconsidered. And I think we need to ask all listeners to go back and rewatch the Gordon Brown referendum campaign where he uh, video where he was walking through the ruins of Coventry Cathedral because he was the only senior politician during the referendum to do exactly that, Jonathan, and remind us all that this was the greatest peace project in human history. I remember a conversation, perhaps now we can talk about it because the sort of off-the-recordness has perhaps lapsed, but with Caroline Lucas, who came to The Guardian during the 2016 campaign. Colleagues could just ask whatever question we like. And I said to her, look, this is an emotional campaign. What is the emotional argument for British membership of the European Union? What's the best one you've got? And she thought about it and she said, it's about war and peace and it's about the Second World War. And I then said, I agree with you. So why don't you make that argument? And she said, I just don't think it flies because it's retrospective. It's backward looking. Do people connect with it anymore? I could tell that she kind of wanted it to be the argument she'd made, but for tactical, maybe electoral reasons, she didn't feel it could cut through. And I think that was such a historic error. I understand why a lot of politicians, remember Cameron tried it, and who went after him and said, you're drumming, beating the drum for World War III? Boris Johnson. He attacked Cameron for daring to mention war and peace. To my mind, it was, it was the, the only argument, really. It was the paramount argument. And Remainers thought about it. There was the Green Party leader. She knew it was the best argument, but something held you know, us I, back. I reckon it was the fact that when we think about the war in this country, we tend to think about Nazism and Germany. And the two cannot be squared in the British imagination that somehow <laughs> it would be a good idea to be, be on good terms with these people. And I think that's what they feared. Bringing up the war brings up all that bulldog, anti-German uh, rhetoric. So yeah. I, I think they, they couldn't. But it could have been done, I agree. But it wasn't. It's also how Britain thinks about the war, which is that we were we stood alone mm-hmm. and the alone bit is the, the bit that people remember and that we were, we were all right. They were the ones who killed each other and we were on the right side of history. They, they followed fascism or Bolshevism. We didn't. But not to understand that you are here in a murderous neighbourhood. And that's why I think the, that's, to my mind, the other side of the, the racism point is it somehow assumes that murder and sort of you know, massacre is a Middle Eastern thing or an African thing. It's invented right here and nobody does it better than Europe. And that's, that's the, the blood-soaked history of this continent. It's near the end of the show, so let's have some stories that aren't getting the attention they deserve in Under the Radar. Ian, what have you got in store for us this week? I mean, right, well, this isn't really Under the Radar. I think, by the way, I think I've preceded my answer to every single round of Under the Radar by going, this isn't really Under the Radar. And <laughs> but. I just, but here we go. Um, because it is, it's, it is sort of about a Marvel thing. Um, the trailer for Ms. Marvel, yeah, I know, fuck you. Um, the trailer for Ms. Marvel uh, dropped this week. Um, Ms. Marvel is a Muslim superhero uh, who came out in the comics sort of about five, six years ago. It's sort of a young um, Pakistani origin girl, lives just sort of outside, I think it's New Jersey, sort of quite nerdy. And when she came out in the comics, it was like a fucking moment in superheroes, which felt like a return to that kind of, to the real origin of the genre, you know, which starts with people like Will Eisner with you know, Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster with these Jewish, poor Jewish kids in New York who are doing outsider comics. It's one of the only industries that they could fucking work in, that they were able to work in and basically created a bunch of Jewish superheroes without ever saying they're Jewish superheroes. Right. Um, then finally, you get this period in our own where you get really Miles Morales and her, which is that updated for the modern period. One, you know. 
black and Latin American parents, the other one Pakistani American uh, parents. It was fucking huge, like a representation of Muslim life in the US, which was not judgmental, which was really intimate, which was warm, which was knowledgeable about it. But also she has the superhero aspect to her. The trailer came out for the TV series. I'm really disappointed it's not going to be a film because I wanted that big Black Panther moment of like, fuck, here it is, like a, a fucking Muslim superhero. So it's going to be a TV series and then she'll go into films later on. Nevertheless, if you watch that trailer, I mean, I fucking, I just, it made me cry almost instantly. I mean, there's a bit in there where you see people in a mosque praying. And I just thought, I can't remember ever seeing that image in an American anything that wasn't full of threat. Mm. You know, it was a, this is the threat. Homeland yeah. sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Even in quite good series, but frankly, I watched the night, you know. Yeah. And then suddenly it was in a completely different capacity. And I just, I, I do think, I find it's on Disney Plus, it's not in cinemas. I do think that this could be quite an important moment. Um, and I'm very much looking forward to when we get to see the full thing. Naomi, what's your under the radar? Nothing even vaguely as positive and hopeful and exciting <laughs> as Ian's. It's uh, Deltacron, which is the new name for the latest COVID strain. And it's a variant which, as the name suggests, is carrying the genes of both uh, Delta and Omicron strains of COVID-19. And and just the fact that, you know, under the radar now are our COVID rates um, because it is inconvenient mm. truth mm. for the government to talk about them uh, because they have now lifted all restrictions. But it's grave. And it, it, of course, it's also underreported because of uh, the fact that, you know, there's this horrendous war raging in Ukraine. But in the UK, cases are up 50% on last week and hospitalizations are up 2,000 on last week. And remember, hospitalizations lag infection. So the fact that infection is up 47,000, we're going to really expect the hospitalizations to rise over the next fortnight. One in 20 are dying in Hong Kong. When you look at their chart, it's gone vertical. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's horrendous. Um, and England's free mass testing programme ends on April the 1st. So what fools we are. What the fuck is happening in Hong Kong? I didn't. I can't. Well, no, it's, it's very low vaccination well, among the elderly. If okay. you if you if you lived in a country where there has been forced sterilisation of minorities by the state, you I would see. also be very sceptical about taking a space, state sponsored vaccine. So mm-hmm. I think it's uh, not it's not vaccine vaccine hesitancy in quite the same way as we've yeah, experienced yeah. here. And also, Sinovac isn't very good. Indeed, <laughs> it doesn't help. <laughs> Uh, Jonathan, what's been under our radar as far as you're concerned? Well, it's um, uh, certainly not cheery. Um, sorry about that. I didn't realise that was part of this spec. Um, <laughs> there are talks going on in Vienna about the Iranian nuclear deal. And to me, it's a sort of amazing example of how the diplomatic world can walk and chew gum at the same time. Because even as there is this huge diplomatic confrontation and actual, an actual war in the middle of it with Ukraine, Russian representatives, Americans and Europeans are all working together on this Iranian deal. The reason why I say it's not that positive is there are signs it's it's come, you know, not working. And the first of those, funnily enough, is the uh, release of Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe, partly because there's this sense that America and Britain have obviously gone separate ways and that the British Foreign Office has decided to do its own deal, which until then – and it seemed it was partly because they were working in lockstep together in Vienna in these talks. The Americans and the British were only operating together. So some people are reading that as a sign that maybe things have come apart in those talks and, the you know, that you might as well do your own thing. But the other thing is I was um, speaking to someone who's a very sort of plugged in uh, analyst and knows is talking to people on all sides, including the Iranian side. And their reading is, you know, even if there is the breakthrough of a deal, some document – 
actually, this has just played into the hands of those inside Iran who want to get a bomb because they've had a ton of time ever since Trump walked, Trump walked away from the deal. They've had the most valuable asset of the lot, which is time, to develop uh, their nuclear program. And the balance of forces within Tehran has gone the wrong way. And the person I was speaking to was saying that, you know, the Americans unfortunately have been played by stringing this out. They should have just on day one said, let's go back into the deal. Instead, they've allowed it to get out of their hands. So as I say, I think it's sort of amazing that this big international thing is going on, even while the Ukraine story, but it may not necessarily yield the kind of fruit we would like. And that's the show. Thanks to Ian. Thank you. Naomi. Thank you. And our guest, Jonathan Freeland. Thank you very much. When did we introduce this thing in the script where we go thank you at the end? Because I swear to God, every time it happens, I'm like, what the fuck? (laughs) I'm like, thank you very much. (laughs) Stay tuned for our extra bit exclusively for patrons. You'll hear a preview after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a list of our latest backers. A big thank you from me to Steve Parsons, Thomas Robel, Laura Cooper, Paul Holt, Daniel Brooks, Foxbat, Toby, Steve Nolan and Rebecca Bennett. What about Isabel End? <laughs> Not on there? Not on the list? I mean, he, he kind of alluded to the idea that we've been wasting our time for six years. How are we going to actively thank him? Um, and my thanks to Owen O'Dally, Lee Corbin. Presumably not that one. <laughs> Jen Lay, Daniel Brooks, Ian Gordon, Tom, Alison Wallace, and Mark Haynes. And thanks from me to Omo Niger, James Oliver, Charlotte CS, Alex Tisher, Daniel Lina, Ben Thompson, John Lambert, and Fiona Lake. See you next time. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Ross Taylor with Ian Dunt and Naomi Smith. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Jonas Ofrenievich, and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. In the extra bit this week, the firm Taylor & Francis has found there's no correlation between better exam grades and exposure to middle-class outings, like trips to the museum or the theatre, things that people who aren't in the middle class apparently can't do. <laughs> this is good news for schools and parents that can't afford them, in a way, but a world in which state schools don't do these things is a world that encourages yet more people to go private. What did the panel get out of school trips? Do you have any happy memories of them, Naomi? I don't have happy memories of school trips um, because there just weren't any good ones. But because I went to school in Northern Ireland, I was lucky enough um, and during the Troubles as well. So basically, uh, if you did anything that was Catholic and Protestant together, the Americans would fund it. So it's and the EU. So that was brilliant. So um, <laughs> if you agreed to play a musical instrument, you didn't have to be very good at it, you would not only have an instrument loaned to you for free and a free peripatetic lesson every week during school hours, in return you had to commit to being in the, or- the, the cross-community orchestra on a Saturday morning that would pick you up and take you to practice and rehearsals and all the rest of it. But then in the summer holidays, we'd go on these amazing tours. So we would go to Disneyland Paris. I've played the Magic Castle. I've played the Notre Dame. And it was amazing. <laughs> 
amazing. It was so good. And um, and all, you know, funded by, uh, yeah, Senator George Mitchell, Tony Blair, and various people in the EU, which was absolutely superb. And, of course, there was So now why didn't we mention that naughty. in the campaign in 2016? <laughs> that would have well, been a good argument. don't you worry about it. The Northern Irish weren't going to give up that gig, and they voted overwhelmingly yeah. <laughs> for Remain. Um, so, yeah, that, that, was, that was a highlight. And, of course, all of the, you know, naughtiness that goes alongside taking lots of teenagers away on a residential trip to Paris together ensued as well, which was probably the best bit. That was a trailer for the bonus bit in this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God, What Now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll also get our new weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else, out every Monday morning, exclusive to backers. Your support really does help us keep going. Thanks for listening. See you next week. 